0: Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, work endures forever. Good
1: morning, everyone. Go ahead and grab a seat. So we're beginning a brand new series today, obviously in the Gospel of Mark. And then we're also beginning community groups that are relaunching this week for the fall semester. So I want to pray for God's word, but I also want to lead us in a prayer. For our small groups as we kick off today's sermon. Uh, As I do, I want to invite the leaders of the small groups to just stand to your feet. I know many of you are in here today, but we want to pray for the leaders in particular as we relaunch these small groups and just ask for God's blessing over this season of small group ministry. So our very shy leaders are going to stand up right now. We don't do stuff like this too often, but Don't be shy. Um, If you're near one of these leaders as we pray right now, if you want to just put a hand on them, we're going to commit them to the Lord. And again, just ask for a very fruitful season of small group ministry. We'll also pray for today's sermon in the Gospel of Mark. So would you please pray together with me? Heavenly Father, we do come to you today just asking God that you would be pleased to bless the ministry of this church. God, we know that, that... all of us are seeking to serve you and labor for you, Lord. But as Peter reminds us, we know that we have to serve you in the strength that you supply. So God, we think today of our small group ministry and in particular, in particular of these leaders that are represented here today. And God, we would just ask that you would fill them with your spirit and empower each leader to serve you in the strength that you supply, God, that we would all collectively just be dependent on you, that we would seek you and that we would love you and love our groups well. God, we pray that this would be an especially fruitful season of small group ministry. God, that the discussions around the word of God and the times of praying for each other and the relationships that are being formed would just build us up in unique and profound ways. God, we want to grow in Christ's likeness and we want to serve you well. So would you use our small group ministry to that end? We pray for all of these married couples. Would you bless the marriages here and the families, Lord? Help us to love our spouses well, to disciple our children and grandchildren well. God, we just commit these ministries and these small groups and these homes to you in Jesus' name. Father, we also want to pray for the preaching of your word today. Your word is alive. Your word is active. Your word is powerful. And we would ask that that would all be demonstrated to us today through the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take my words and that you would actually use them to build up this beautiful community of faith called Apostles Church. God, we pray that through the text of Scripture, we would hear your voice and that it would strike us profoundly with power today and that, God, you would call us into a deeper love for you and a deeper discipleship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to be a follower of his? These are the fundamental questions that Mark is going to answer for us in these 16 chapters that are called the Gospel of Mark. And what you and I are going to discover together is that these are the fundamental questions of all of human existence. After all, if in fact Jesus is, as Mark posits for us in verse 1, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, then it's true that his life and his ministry is the most significant thing that has ever taken place in the world. Like many of you, I presume, I love all of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the inspired words of God himself. And all of the Bible is life-giving. But I've got to confess to you that probably, again, like many of you, I really enjoy reading the Gospels. I find the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John to be particularly enriching because they give us this direct view, this uh, insider look into the life and the ministry of Jesus himself. And so for months now I've been filled with excitement about exploring this book together. Now most modern scholars tell us that the book of Mark is the first of the four gospels. Meaning that the author of this book, actually did something that was rather pioneering. He was the first one to take it upon himself to actually put down a written record of the life of Jesus. You'll remember after Jesus uh, commissions his church and ascends to heaven, the church just starts preaching orally about Jesus. Everywhere they go, they're talking about Jesus and what he did in his life and his death and his resurrection. But at some point, Christians like Mark decided, you know what, it might be helpful if we actually write this down so that this can be recorded and this can be distributed widely. Mark had no other examples that he could draw on as he put together this narrative, this biography of the life of Jesus. Mark's gospel is also the shortest of all the gospels. Many of you have noticed that. Now, to be clear, that's not why we chose it, Um, although that wouldn't have been a bad motive considering how long we were just in the books of Samuel. Uh, But it's the shortest of all four Gospels. Now, that's not because there wasn't a lot that could be said about Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, at the end of John's Gospel, he has this really interesting line. This is John 21, 25. This is the very end of John's Gospel. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written." translation John is saying that he made a long story short okay we could have talked forever about significant things that Jesus of Nazareth said and did but we have selected carefully what we are conveying to you do any of you have the habit of saying to make a long story short when you tell a story some of you are nodding so some of us are willing to admit that and that's great I always find it humorous though when somebody says that, you know, to make a long story short and then they proceed to tell you a very long story. It seems like that happens at least 50% of the time. But Mark's not like that. He doesn't do that. Mark really does take a long story, a story that again, according to John, would fill up all of the books in the world and he says, let me condense that down and tell you a very short, concise, and quick story about Jesus. Let me just cut to the chase and give you the main point. And so right out of the gate, Mark does that for us. He plays his hand. He shows us right here in verse 1 what his purpose is, what he's setting out to do. Here's Mark 1.1 again. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what Mark is setting out to do is he's attempting to tell us, as his readers, the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, who Mark says is the Son of God. Now, this is why our Bibles have the title, The Gospel According to Mark. It is interesting, though, that Mark does not identify himself as the author here in verse 1 or anywhere else in this gospel. This is different than other authors of the Bible, like Paul, for example. In numerous places, Paul will just right out of the gate tell you, hey, I'm the guy writing this letter. Here's Romans 1.1, for example. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So he tells him right up front, this is coming from Paul. Mark doesn't do anything like that, and yet we attribute this gospel to Mark. But we have no good reason to doubt his authorship. From the earliest days of the Christian church, Christians uniformly attributed this gospel to Mark, also known as John Mark. John being his Hebrew name, Mark being his Roman name. And this Mark we know quite a bit about. He was the cousin, the younger cousin of Barnabas, who was a missionary partner with the Apostle Paul. This Mark was also the one who had a falling out with the Apostle Paul on a missionary journey. But we're not here to air out his dirty laundry, so we'll save that story for another time. Suffice it to say, they reconciled, and I'm sure their friendship has been totally solid in heaven for the last 2,000 years. This Mark, you should know, was also not an eyewitness of most of Jesus' ministry. Um, he probably bore witness to the events of the end of Jesus' life. We'll talk about that later in this gospel. But for much of the ministry of Jesus He was not an eyewitness. Instead, church history tells us that he got most of his information from the apostle Peter, who was an eyewitness of all of the ministry of Christ. According to Acts 12.12, Mark's mother, Mary, had a large house that was used for Christians to gather and worship in the city of Jerusalem. Peter apparently went to this house often because in Acts chapter 12, when Peter comes, the servant of the house, the servant girl, she actually just recognizes his voice at the gate. So clearly he was a staple in this home. It's also possible that Peter led Mark to Christ because he calls him Mark my son in 1 Peter 5.13. And we know that Peter, the apostle, spent the latter part of his life in Rome. Ultimately, that's where he was martyred. He was killed for his faith in the city of Rome. And we know that Mark himself was in the city of Rome, for example, during the Apostle Paul's first imprisonment there. So Mark's in Rome and Peter is in Rome. And so it's likely that Mark writes his gospel there in the city of Rome and was conveying the story of Jesus from conversations and the preaching of Peter the Apostle. And so armed with this information, Mark sets out to explain to you and to me The gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. In this way, verse 1 sort of stands as a purpose statement for the whole book that follows. Mark is going to spend now 16 chapters filling in for us the good news of Jesus and what it means that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So let's begin there. To call Jesus the Christ, as Mark does in verse 1, is a very significant thing. For those who are unaware, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, if he was your fifth grade teacher, you would not refer to him as Mr. Christ. Christ is a title. Okay, and that title literally means anointed one. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, which is a word that probably means more to us when you think about what a Messiah is. But that word Christ, again, it means anointed one. And it refers to God's deliverer that would come and rescue his people. Now for the Jewish readers of Mark's gospel, they would have had pre-existing ideas of what the life and ministry of Jesus was going to look like if in fact he was God's Messiah, if in fact he was the Christ. For the Jewish readers of Mark's gospel, they would have said, oh, this is the Christ. You want to tell us about the Christ? Well, then we expect him to be a military and political leader. See, the Jews had a long-standing prophecy, and we just learned a lot about this in the books of Samuel, about a future Davidic king, a son of David, who was going to come onto the scene and he would sit on the throne of his father. He was going to rule over the people of God. He would expand God's kingdom and he would sit on that throne forever. So they thought, our Messiah is coming. He's going to be a king. He's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to establish the kingdom of Israel again. No longer are we going to be under the thumb of the Romans, these occupiers. He's going to come, he's going to drive them out and we'll no longer be oppressed and we'll be free and we'll be prosperous once again. The Jews also had some pre-existing ideas of what the title Son of God could refer to in verse 1. See, for the Jews, that title Son of God could be used at times of angels, that the angels are the sons of God. It could be used of certain human figures, and it could even be used of the nation Israel as a whole, that Israel is God's son. So they had these ideas of what Son of God meant. And to Mark's Roman readers, They also would have had a category in their mind of what might be meant here as they're reading Mark 1.1 and they're understanding Jesus to be the son of God. After all, that was a title that was adopted by Caesar himself. Their own emperor called himself the son of God. So again, all Jews and all Gentiles would have read these titles and thought, okay, this is just about some guy who's going to be powerful and he's going to do some important things. And yet, as we'll see, Mark means something significantly more than what either the Jews or the Romans could have ever imagined. And what we'll find is that it's going to fly in the face of everything that they thought that they knew about God's anointed Messiah. Now, Mark is telling us here the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's sort of taking it from the top. Let's just start at the beginning here. I'll tell you the story. And for Mark, he does not feel like he can adequately tell the story of Jesus and the good news of Jesus without actually backing up a little bit and telling us some of the story of another character this man introduced to us in verse 4 called John. Mark understood that it was the coming of John and the ministry of John that had to set the stage for the arrival of the Messiah. And so today in our eight verses that have been read, we're going to focus our attention here on this man named John and how he prepared the soil for the coming of Jesus and the good news that would follow. We'll consider his ministry, his appearance, and finally his message. So let's take those in order. Let's think about John's ministry, which is described for us here in verses two through five. Mark, starting in verse two, is going to quote from the Old Testament in verses two and three. There's two different prophecies. Some scholars argue three, but two for sure. Different prophecies that he's tying into here that are from the Old Testament. And friends, this reminds us of a very important truth. Namely, that there is continuity between the Old Testament in your Bible and the New Testament. Okay, Jesus is coming on the scene not to start a brand new religion as such. Jesus is the fulfillment of the plan of God for all time. Jesus is the fulfillment of the revelation of God that began with the book of Genesis and worked its way out through the nation of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the climax of that story and we have to understand it that way. And so in these two verses, verses two and three, Again, Mark's going to string together two Old Testament prophecies and then significantly he's going to connect them to John the Baptist, arguing that John is their fulfillment. Now verse 2 comes from the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. It's Malachi 3.1. And then verse 3 comes from the prophet Isaiah. It's Isaiah 40 verse 3. Here's what Malachi 3.1 says. It says behold i send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight behold he is coming says the lord of hosts here's isaiah 43 a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god now friends here's what we have to see here that is significant In both of these prophecies, notice that the messenger who is going to come is preparing the people for the arrival of God himself. If we can put Malachi 3.1 back on the screen, I just want you to see this here. The messenger is coming. He's going to prepare the way before who? Me. God's speaking here. He will prepare the way for me. And then he goes on to say, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So in Malachi, there's a messenger that's coming and he's going to prepare the people to meet the Lord. They're going to be prepared for his arrival. The same is true in Isaiah's prophecy. And now Mark sees their fulfillment, the prophecy's fulfillment in the coming of John, who prepared the people for the arrival of Jesus. I mean, stop and think about that. Mark is saying something very significant about Jesus here. He's already beginning to pour meaning for us into this title that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Out of the gate, he's suggesting that the Son of God is more than a mere mortal. This Jesus has some sort of unique relationship to God himself because his arrival marks the arrival Of God Himself. And immediately after quoting these two prophecies about this messenger who's going to make ready the people for God, He introduces in verse 4 John. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to Him and were being baptized by Him in the river Jordan confessing their sins we can say this then about the ministry of John John is the promised messenger who would prepare the people for the coming of the Lord this is why oftentimes John is called the forerunner of the Messiah or the forerunner of Jesus a forerunner is somebody who runs before somebody else to prepare for their arrival And John is doing this. He's preparing the people for the arrival of Christ. It was said of the late Queen of England that everywhere she went, she was greeted with the smell of fresh paint. Okay, She would show up to a new place and everybody would fix everything and get it all dialed in because the Queen's coming. right? Which makes sense. We do the same thing for our president. We prepare everything, make sure everything's the way it ought to be when this important person gets there. And John is sort of like the person who's got the queen's itinerary and runs out ahead of the queen into the next town or village and makes sure that everything is ready for when the queen gets there a few days later. This is what John's doing, not for the queen, of course, but for the Messiah of God. And notice with me that John does not work from within or from the inside of the current religious system. John is not a priest who's ministering in the temple. We're not introduced to John there in the city of Jerusalem doing the work of God. We find John actually out in the wilderness beyond the River Jordan, totally outside the current religious spectrum. And this speaks of the fact that God is doing something new at this moment in history through John the Baptist and the Messiah, Jesus, who would follow. See, the Jordan is not just a river. The Jordan is also a border in the land of Israel. When you get to the Jordan River, you're on the eastern edge of the promised land. And when you go east of the Jordan, you're out in the wilderness. This is where John's at. This is where he's doing ministry. And significantly, this is where the children of Israel first entered into the promised land. They came through the wilderness on the east side and they traveled across the Jordan River and they entered into the promised land. The fact that God sends uh, John into the wilderness to prepare the people to go back in suggests to us that through John, God is actually preparing his people to re-enter into a new promised land, a promised land that is opened up for them in and through the person of Jesus Christ. So John's in the wilderness on the east side of the Jordan and he is preparing the people to meet the Lord. And the question becomes, how did he prepare them? It wasn't with new coats of paint. Okay, look at verse 4. It'll tell us. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. How did John prepare the people for the arrival of the Lord. Answer, through a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice there in verse four that it says that John is proclaiming this baptism rather than performing this baptism, which of course he was doing that as well. He actually physically did baptize people. But it's interesting that he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That means that he's standing here on the Jordan, or on the the banks of the Jordan, and he's preaching something. He's talking to the people. He's telling them about their need to repent and be baptized so that their sins will be forgiven of them. In Luke's gospel, we get a sampling of what John was telling the people. Here's Luke chapter three, verses seven and eight. So again, here's the scene. He's in the wilderness, and all of these wonderful people from the city have come out to the woods, out to the wilderness to see him. And he's standing there and he's speaking to massive crowds of people. And he's definitely a people pleaser because he says this in verse 7. He said, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, to, or baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now that'll preach well because that's like you offspring of serpents. Okay, you are the children of a bunch of snakes. Okay, he goes on to say, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So he's saying, listen, there's wrath coming. There's judgment coming on you unless you bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance. Two verses later in Luke 3.10, he goes on to say this. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So they hear this preaching from this wild man in the the wilderness and, and the Holy Spirit cuts them to the heart. They're terrified of the reality that God's ready to judge them for their sins. And they say, what shall we do? Verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So notice all these different people are coming and they're hearing John say, there's wrath coming upon you unless you repent. You need to be, you need to repent and you need to be baptized in order for your sins to be dealt with. And he's pointing out these specific sins that each and every person is involved with now friends here's what we need to take away from this repentance is required to be prepared to meet the lord okay repentance is required to be prepared to meet the lord if we will not repent of our sins we will not meet the lord on good terms when we meet the Lord, it will be what John warned of. It will be wrath coming from the Lord. Repentance is the only way that we can be prepared to actually meet the Lord on good terms. So what is repentance then? Repentance, VJ, I just ripped off your definition because I liked it so much. I hope you're not bothered by that. Repentance is a change of mind a change of heart and a change of direction. Okay, the Greek word literally means a change of mind. It's a turning of the mind. But yes, it's a turning of the mind. It's a changing of heart. It's a turning of direction. So I've often said it's like doing a 180. In life, you're going a certain direction in your life. Maybe you're following a false religion, a false God who's not truly God, and you're orienting your life that way. Maybe it's just you living for yourself. You've you've decided what's right and what's wrong and what matters and you're living like that and all of a sudden the gospel comes and confronts you and you realize that Jesus is the Christ he's the son of God and you're called to repent now and respond appropriately to that so you're going this way in life and you do a 180 now and all of a sudden you've turned your back on the way that you were living okay, the direction you were going the purposes you were pursuing the sins you were living in and you say you know what now I'm actually orienting my life around Jesus. Jesus is now Lord, and you start walking in this brand new direction. This is the way of repentance, and you begin bearing fruit, like John talks about, that is worthy of repentance. Now, being repentant does not mean that we are suddenly now sinless, but it does mean that we have a brand new relationship with our sin. Again, no longer is our sin something that we're just committed to living in. We're not just walking in rebellion against the Lord God. We're saying, no, 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 no. Jesus is calling me to a brand new way. If I'm a tax collector, according to John, what do I have to do? I need to collect no more than I'm authorized to do. If I'm a soldier, I need to not threaten people and steal money from them. I need to actually start living according to God's righteousness. So again, we have a brand new relationship with our sin. Of course, we do still sin, But we're not committed to living in our sin. We're committed to living for the Lord. All of us, like the people in John's day, have our own specific sins that we need to to repent of. Okay, Many of our sins are the same. Some sins that you struggle with are different than sins that other people are struggling with. But we all have our own specific sins. And we all need to come to the word of God. And we need to say, what then shall I do? Like these people are asking John. So that the Holy Spirit can look at you and he can say through his word, you, this is your particular sin, you need to turn from that. You need to walk away from that. You need to begin to live the way of the Lord. The repentant person is the person who's on a brand new path. And it's a path where they are identifying sin in their life. They're confessing that sin or acknowledging that sin. And they are seeking to overcome that sin. I want to live now righteously for the Lord. Now I want to just, before we move on, speak just for a moment to both the non-Christian and the Christian here today. You may be here today and you're not a Christian. And if that's you, we are so thankful that you're here. It's wonderful that you're here and you are welcome to be here every single Sunday with us and explore the life of Jesus together with us. But if you're not a Christian here today, meaning you've never declared Jesus to be your Lord, you've never confessed Him as your Lord, you've never committed your life to following Him, you need to hear this, that repentance is the only way to be prepared to meet the Lord on good terms. And you also need to hear this. You can repent today. Today can be for you the day of salvation. You can today... Change your mind. You can today have a change of heart. And you can today change direction relating to your sin. You don't have to wait a month. It doesn't take five years to do that. Yes, we grow in repentance over time, but you can make that fundamental decision today to say, I am done living for myself or done living in antagonism against God. I'm going to start living for the Lord and obeying Him and following Him today, you can do that. And guess what? If you will do that, if you today will confess your sin, like the people do in verse 5, and you'll repent of your sin, listen to me, God will forgive you. He will. He will forgive you of every single sin, every wrong thing you have ever thought, ever said, or ever done. It's like he goes to the whiteboard of your life that has every single sin you've ever done and he walks up with a gigantic eraser the moment you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus he just wipes it all away that's what he is willing to do for you you are not too far gone you need to know that there is nothing that you have ever done in your life that God wouldn't forgive now let me speak briefly to the Christian I just want to ask one question to all of us who name the name of Jesus here that are Christians. And the, que- the question is this, are you demonstrating fruit worthy of repentance? Okay, because repentance is a turning like we're talking about. And that happens in a moment of time. But it becomes a pathway that we follow for the rest of our lives. Where we're living in repentance, continually following Jesus continually taking inventory of our lives and our own sinfulness. And wherever we find sin, we confess that sin and we seek to overcome that sin. Is that where you're at, Christian? Is that descriptive of your life? Or would you have to admit that you're indifferent to your sins? You've grown comfortable in your sin. It doesn't bother you. You just keep on continuing in them. If that's so, then brother or sister, I would just challenge you today to do some soul work, to ask God to change your heart, to open your heart, to convict you over your sin, and to empower you to demonstrate fruit worthy of repentance. So John's ministry is that of a forerunner. John has come on the scene 2,000 years ago to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. He's calling them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And this brings us now to verse 6 and John's appearance. Here's what verse 6 says. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, in verse 6, we're given this this really, really brief biographical sketch of this man, John, which feels kind of out of place, right? Right? I mean, if you think about it, all eight verses about John here are spiritual, except for verse 6, which is very physical. It's a description of what he liked to eat and how he liked to dress, which are both honestly kind of weird. I mean, camel hair, especially the way that they could make clothes 2,000 years ago, does not sound particularly comfortable to wear. And even if you take locusts and you dip those in honey, that just doesn't sound appetizing still, right? So it's just kind of weird. Like, why would... Mark and other gospel writers, why would they include a description of how he looked and what he ate? What's going on here? Well, this is actually really significant. Okay, at the end of Malachi, which he already quotes from in verse 2, right? That's Malachi 3.1. When you get to the end of the book of Malachi in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, check this out. This is what we read. It says behold i will send you elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers lest i come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction so that right there that's how the old testament ends with those verses with this promise of the return of Elijah, this great Old Testament prophet who's going to come on the scene and he's going to prepare the people of God for the coming of the Lord. So there was a long-standing expectation among the Jews at the time of Christ that Elijah was going to come back and he was going to mark the beginning of the end, so to speak, the end of the age, the arrival of the Lord. That's why later in Mark, the disciples asked Jesus this question. Here's Mark 9, 11. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come, or first Elijah must come? See, the scribes, the, the, the teachers of the Bible at that time, they commonly said, Elijah needs to come. He's going to come back. So there's this, again, this long-standing expectation that Elijah is going to actually come back. Now, before John was born... Check out what the angel told his father, Zechariah, about him. This is in Luke chapter 1. In verse 16 it says, So the angel's talking to Zechariah about John the Baptist, and he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So John is coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the people. Now back to verse 6. Why this mention of what John looked, alike, or looked like? Answer, because John looked remarkably similar to Elijah. Here's Elijah, a description of him in 2 Kings 1.8. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah... The Tishbite. Elijah had a very unique wardrobe. Okay, the, the guy just said there, he's wearing all of this hair and a leather belt. And the guy's like, got it. It's Elijah, clearly, because Elijah's the only guy that dresses like that around here. So he had a very unique and, 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 and um, type of wardrobe that would make him stand out among everybody else. I heard someone say it this way, that if you were watching a film about the Civil War, And all of a sudden this figure comes on the screen and he's tall, he's lanky, he's pale, he has dark hair, he has a really tall black top hat. You wouldn't need anybody to say, oh, that's Abe Lincoln, right? Because he had a really, really unique look about him. You just immediately recognize it. And so something similar is going on here with John the Baptist. The way that John looked, the ministry that he was doing sure looked a lot like Elijah and it would have caused it to click for certain people where they go, hold on, could this be, is it possible that all of these Old Testament prophecies are converging in this moment in time? Is God actually doing the thing that he said that he was going to do? Is is God himself getting ready to come on the scene? Do we need to prepare ourselves to receive him? They would have seen this and made this connection. John is, according to Mark here, The fulfillment of the prophecy regarding Elijah's return. And guess what? This was what Jesus said about him as well. Here's Mark 9, 12 through 13. He's talking to the disciples here and he says to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has, past tense, come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. John the Baptist is already beheaded in prison at this point, and Jesus is saying Elijah has come. Okay? It's John the Baptist. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to do what God promised in the Old Testament. So friends, Mark's mention of John's appearance here is not incidental. It's extremely intentional. Again, he is trying in a different way now to make the same point that in this man, John the Baptist, you have the fulfillment of these prophecies about a messenger who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, let's look at these final two verses. and Let's consider together John's message. Look at verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So here's the message that Mark gives us on the lips of John the Baptist. And through what he says here, we are getting a glimpse, friends, into the greatness of this man, John the Baptist, who was a great man. In fact, Jesus had this high praise in Matthew eleven eleven. Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus held this man in high regard. And here in these two verses, we're getting a glimpse into where his greatness lies. What was John's message? Here's his message. I'm not the guy. You guys are coming out into the wilderness. You're listening to me preach. I'm baptizing you in the river. That's all wonderful, but guess what? I'm not the guy. There's another guy coming. He's the guy. He's the one that really matters. He's the one of importance. The way John says it, after me comes he who is mightier than I. He's the great one. Okay, I'm kind of like when you go to the movie theaters and you have the preview. I'm one of those. But the feature-length film, his name's Jesus. He's the guy. He's the real reason y'all should be at the movie theater. He's the big deal, mightier than me. In fact, John goes even further. He says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loosen the strap of his sandal. Now, that's lost on us in our day and age. But in the ancient world, in the Mediterranean world, where everybody wore sandals, when you would enter into a house... It was the job of the most menial servant in that house to take off your sandals and to wash your feet. So what's John saying? He is saying, listen, I'm not the guy. I am so not the guy that I'm not even worthy to be the most menial servant of the guy. That's how great this guy is. That's how amazing this guy is that's coming on the scene after me. I don't even deserve to be called his slave, his servant, because he is so superior to me. And friends, for every one of us that name the name of Jesus, we really ought to look at John the Baptist and his humility and his preaching as a model for our own. The secret to John's greatness is bound up in his humble Christ-centeredness. His greatness is bound up in his humble Christ-centeredness. Later in Mark's gospel, there's going to be a really famous discussion where the disciples just totally don't get it. This is in Mark chapter 10. And they're going to argue about who gets to be the greatest when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And when you're talking about greatness in the presence of the guy that John the Baptist, who's the greatest human other than Jesus to ever walk the face of the earth, and you're talking about greatness in the presence of the guy who John the Baptist said, I'm not even worthy to be a slave, you're going to get rebuked. And that's what happens in Mark chapter 10. In verse 42, it says, and Jesus called them to him and said to them. And you can almost just imagine Jesus just like, guys, come on, gather around. Like I've been with you this long and I still got to teach you this stuff. Come on, get over here. Gathers all the disciples around and he says, listen, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus is just pointing out what's still true in the world today. The people who have the biggest titles and the biggest salaries and the best offices are the ones in charge. They're the ones with the authority. He says, that's the way the world works, okay? And that's what you guys are clamoring for. You want to be at my right hand and my left hand. You want the best titles. You want the best job. And he says, listen in verse 43, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, we cannot be reminded too often that in Christ's kingdom true greatness belongs to the lowly okay true greatness belongs to those who who understand that it is not about them it is about Jesus Francis Chan once said the point of our lives is to point to him that's true Just like John the Baptist, it's not about me. There's one coming after me. It's about him and you need to seek him. True greatness belongs to the lowly, the one who is most like Christ himself. Let me make a brief observation here about preaching and then we'll close. From John's preaching, we learn this, that faithful preaching Whether it's on a pulpit or it's as you're sharing the gospel with somebody. Faithful preaching exalts Jesus. Every single time. Faithful preaching lifts up Jesus. Faithful preaching is not mere storytelling. Faithful preaching is not engaging public speaking. Although that can help. Faithful preaching is not moralizing. Okay, these are the 10 things you need to do to be a better you. That's not faithful preaching. Faithful preaching is taking Jesus and lifting him up and exalting him and pointing all attention to Jesus in an attempt to turn the hearers to him. So that they will say, wow, he's amazing and I want to follow him. Faithful preaching exalts Jesus and faithful preaching is humble. It's not self aggrandizing. Faithful preaching is not trying to make much of the preacher. It's not trying to be impressive. A faithful preacher does not think too highly of him or herself. And J. Hudson Taylor was such a preacher. He's the famous missionary to China, he's the founder of the China Inland Mission. And there's this story about J. Hudson Taylor where he was invited to preach in a church. The pastor got up and probably thought he was doing a great job of really building up Jay Hudson Taylor here. I've got this really special guest here today. I want everybody to know how awesome he is. So he's telling the congregation how great he is. That was the word he kept using. We've got the great Jay Hudson Taylor here this morning. And so when he's finally done trying to introduce him, Taylor walks up to the pulpit to roaring applause. When everybody quiets down, here's what he had to say. Friends, I'm but the small servant Of an illustrious master. Isn't that beautiful? Taylor shared the spirit of John the Baptist. It's not about me. I'm just a a, a lowly servant, but I have a great master and you need to meet him. May God multiply preachers like that in our churches today. So John says, "This, This Jesus coming is far superior to me in his person. He ends by also proving that he's far superior in his ministry. Verse 8, I've baptized you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's what you need to know about that. In the Old Testament, it was God alone who bestows the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives the Holy Spirit. What must this mean then for this carpenter from Nazareth that he's going to go around baptizing you with God's Holy Spirit? Incredible. We also know in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would come upon certain people in certain times and places. But a major part of the good news of Jesus is that for every single person who repents of their sin and puts their trust in Him, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Friend, if you're a Christian here today, you have been baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. Just as John's baptism involved the complete submersion of the individual into water, Christ's baptism involves the complete submersion of the person in the Holy Spirit. The scriptures say we are filled with the Holy Spirit from head to toe. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit is our counselor. He's our comforter. He's our helper. He's the one who makes Christ real to us. And he's the one who assures us that we are, in fact, the children of God. He's with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never let us go. And we have him all because of Christ. And so today we've seen that the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with this astounding affirmation that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was flesh and blood just like you and me, he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And only those who confess and repent of their sins are prepared to meet him. But for all of those who do meet him, they will find that they are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So how about you? Have you come to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God? Are you prepared to meet him? Have you confessed and repented of your sins? Are you today filled with the Holy Spirit? If your answer to those questions is no, then just like John's first hearers, today you are being called to make a change. Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you today again for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you again today that through Jesus, through his life, through his ministry, through his death, and through his resurrection, good news has come into the world. And God, we thank you for all of us who are Christians today. That this good news has come into our world. That through Jesus, we have had our sins forgiven. Because we know that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for all of us who would turn to him in faith, repenting of our rebelliousness against you and following him. So God, thank you that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. And thank you that in Christ, we are now filled with the Holy Spirit who's with us, who teaches us, who leads us, who guides us, who comforts us. And God, we pray that this week you would fill us with wonder at the good news of the gospel. We pray that you would empower us to live in light of this good news, that we would walk on this way of repentance, that we would take sin seriously, that we would want to be a holy people that are prepared as a bride is adorned for her husband. So God, would you do a great and marvelous work in and through this body of believers called Apostles Church. And we ask all of this now in Jesus' name, amen.